Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddy Dobbs. Sitting here in my apartment with, unusually actually, Monica opposite me, busy working away. Do you want to say hi, Monica? Hi, hi everyone. Usually Monica's, I don't know why, but every time I do a podcast, Monica's usually tucked away in another room, so it's unusual to have her in front of me. And I wanted to start off this week's episode with a thought. You're never too old, too young, or too inexperienced to start anything new. Because this week, in fact, let me let that sit with you. You're never too old, too young, or too inexperienced to start anything new. I've had this week, funnily enough, more more messages and comments from people looking to get into biking or maybe returning to biking, but being kind of a bit unsure, reticent, a bit nervous about getting back into it because they're they're scared about, for example, maybe it being too dangerous or they think they're too old to get into biking, but you really are never too old. I have everything, I have everything from from 28-year-olds all the way up to 65, 70 year olds saying, I'd love to get into biking, but I feel it's too late. And it is never, ever too late. I remember when I was learning to ride and I did a one week direct access course. And that's where you go from never having ridden before to passing your test if you pass first time, which of course I didn't. And my instructor was a 55 year old ex-IT engineer. And I was chatting to him and he looked like, you know, your definition of a proper biker, beard and everything. And I remember thinking, wow, this guy must have been biking all his life. And I was chatting to him and I said, so when did you start biking? And he said, eight years ago. He started biking when he was 48 years old. And he was an IT engineer all his life and fancied a complete change, passed his test when he was 48, quit his IT job because he didn't enjoy it and ended up doing what he loves, which is riding a bike and being a motorcycle instructor. And his first motorbike, a 1400cc Suzuki. And I said to him, God, is that sensible buying such a massive bike? And he said to me, a motorbike is as safe and as dangerous as you want it to be. A motorbike isn't dangerous. It's the rider that makes it dangerous. You can have a Ducati Panigale and it can be the safest bike on the road if you want it to be. But that's it. Just thought I'd say that because you get a lot of people say, just wondering, you know, have I left it too late? I was speaking to a friend of mine. This was about two years ago, a friend from school I just bumped into. He's probably about probably about 32 years old when I was chatting to him. And he said, oh, I, I wish I'd have got into biking, but uh, it's too late now. It's never, ever too late. doesn't matter how old you are. It is never too late. But let me move on from that. I just wanted to give you that kind of thought because I speak to bikers of all, all ages. And it really does, it brings everyone together and it's an eclectic mix of people. And it's open, available, accessible to everyone. Just last week, Monica and I were in Devon. In fact, I'll get to this in a bit, but we're in Devon and we saw, oh God, we saw a great character. He must have been about 80 years old on a, I think it was a 500cc Honda of some kind, riding around the country lanes, waving at cars as he went past. Great sight to see. But listen to this, listen to this. 
Um, this comes on the back of doing a, a YouTube video and it's where Monica and I went into London and we saw, what's the name of it? Bolts Motorcycles London and the Bike Shed. I think I mentioned this last week, but I got a great message. I thought I'd share this. Just a bit of how it was back in the day, back in the 70s. In fact, this is probably around about, I guess this guy's gonna be around about my dad's age, but basically he said to me, Freddie, we were at Bike Shed last week when the GP was on. The place was packed, but we still managed to park and get a seat. I, for one, was impressed with the service, food, atmosphere created by the staff. I, now, listen to this. I used to hang around this area when I was a kid, and when a teenager spent many, uh, and when as a teenager spent many a night in the pubs just outside the bike shed, pulled over a few times for speeding on my bikes back in 1977 and 78, the coppers in those days just gave you a talking to and then chatted about your bike for a while before letting you go. No speed cameras and nothing to worry about back in the day. It's just a different time back then. I love all those old stories about what it was like. I mean, in my dad's day, I, I don't know, would I get my dad in trouble for this? But in my dad's day, back in the 70s, early 70s maybe, you know, the saying used to be, one for the road. You know, just before you head home, after a night out, oh, go on, one for the road, one more pint for the road, one more shot. That's what it was like back then. Things have changed so much, and I'm guessing probably people maybe 60 plus think, where's the joy gone? Where's that pure freedom gone? Love that. So thank you for sharing those stories because I, I just, I love reading those. And kind of moving on from that, as you know, Monarch and I are kind of getting ready to head off to Tenerife and we, I get a lot of messages from, you know, Brits and expats leaving the UK and heading off. And it's just so interesting hearing from so many of them and you get such, uh, a wide range of you, you know kind of opinions about what it's like you know relocating for example having a quick chat to a guy who had a dive center in turkey for nine years got people who have relocated over to the south of france holland and a gigantic amount of people relocating over to australia and the usa from the uk and when we do our YouTube video videos, actually, they really like kind of reminiscing and looking back at what the UK's like since they've left. And it got me thinking because, you know, I had a message from someone saying, "What? Like, why? Why would you relocate? Does it make sense to relocate from the UK?" And it's always a tough one because the UK obviously is a great country, but I just I want to know what it's like being getting some winter sun you know for example in the uk we it never gets ridiculously cold and it never gets ridiculously hot so for example you can ride year round in the uk you can ride in december jan feb march i've done a few years where i ride year round but getting that consistent nice weather in the summer is something monica and i thought we'd try and i really can't wait to see how we feel at the end of it and again, I was chatting to a Canadian because you get quite a few Brits relocating to Canada as well. And in Canada, you may go for the good weather in the summer, but the Canadian winters, I mean, speaking to Canadian bikers, I think that they get, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I really appreciate the input. In Canada, it sounds like you literally get three months, three months of good biking weather. So apparently in Canada, there aren't that many bikers at all because the season is so 
tiny. But God, there was a, there was a classic bike meetup in Canada and there are some absolute stunning bikes. Someone shared some pics, just some, I've never seen such a high quality, eclectic mix of motorcycles as in a Vancouver based motorcycle meetup. It looked absolutely incredible. Vintage Harleys, classic triumphs from the 60s. Really, the bike scene in Canada, it may be a short season and there may not be many bikers in Canada, but wow, when the Canadians do a bike meetup, superb, superb quality of motorcycles. And Monaco and I actually, we've just got back from a bit of sun and sea. We went down on a 1,000 mile round trip to Devon on the southwest coast of the UK. Rode the Bonneville down, had the wingman of the road tent on the back of the Bonneville, two panniers on either side, and we stayed at a guest house, which is kind of a converted house and you got your own bathroom, no kitchen or anything, so you have to go out and buy food. But we stayed there for four to five days, riding around a stunning, stunning coast of, of Devon. The first day we were in the north, second day in the south, and third day, the third day was the day that we we're in Dartmoor National Park, and I camped. I left Monica, I got the wingman of the road, and I actually camped for the night, and it's probably the first camping night with a biking trip that I've done probably... It's probably about four years now. I almost can't believe that. Three or four years now since I've last done it. And there's nothing like it. When you put a tent on the back of your bike, it's a very, very different feeling from when you're, for example, just going for a day trip or you're staying somewhere specific that you know you need to get back to in the evening. It's just that feeling of freedom, having no idea where you're going to be, no idea where you're going to end up. And it doesn't even matter. You don't need to worry about where you're going to end up because you can stay absolutely anywhere. And if anyone's considering in the UK a biking camping trip or any camping trip, have a look at Dartmoor National Park because the UK is very different. I don't know what it's like in other countries. For example, where Monica comes from in Lithuania, she can be in the countryside, look as far as the eye can see, and think, right, there we go, there's a nice looking lake there, let's go there. But in the UK, everyone owns every bit of land. It's a tiny country with about 64 million people in it. And every bit of land is owned by someone. So the chances are, if you see a beautiful spot, there are gonna be four different landowners who own the land before you can even get to that spot. But Dartmoor National Park is different. Wild camping, camping where you don't pay a penny is legal and I checked I've got the map and everything and it does work and it is legal and by about 6 p.m. when I was riding around Dartmoor National Park you can see all of the campers start to park up get the camp their tents out and everything and start pitching their spots in the beauty areas the really scenic areas near a, a lake or near a stream something like that so I set the tent up with Monica just before she left at about 7 30 got a spot where we just got the end of the sunset and I knew that I'd get this, all of the sunrise the following morning. Set the tent up, wingman of the road, took, first time I've ever done it, 10 minutes, could not be easier. Had a couple of beers, a bit of dinner, and it was a stunning evening. I think Monica left at about maybe eight o'clock or something, but it was a very, very special day. Just having your bike parked up there with the tent, 
sunrise, uh, sunset, then just go into the tent, incredibly nice and warm, built-in sleeping bag, built-in mattress, very, very warm, so much so that I took my sweatshirt off, it was so toasty in there, and then wake up at 6.50 in the morning to a cloud-free sky with a sunset. It was, oh, I need to do more bike camping because it really is an incredible feeling of freedom. You have to tell about the horses. Oh yeah, actually Monica's saying, uh, it was actually a bit unpleasant, I forgot about that. Woke up in the morning and everything was fine. Woke up just chilling there, looking at the, the bike in the tent, watching the sunrise and a group of four horses came over. There are basically wild horses in Dartmoor National Park and they can do what they want and they are too tame because they came over, they were eating my tent, my panniers, trying to get all of the food out of my panniers, eating the wires on my bike, the brake lines, and I kept shooing them away, but they were like an incredibly annoying brother or sister who just would not leave you alone, and they want to push you to your limit until you snap. And I kept shooing them away, and they'd walk away, and then three seconds later, they'd come back. It's like a child with ADHD. It's incredibly annoying. So basically, the, the final straw was, I was looking at the bike, bike was packed up, I had to quickly pack up, wrap up the tent because they were destroying everything I owned, put the tent back onto the bike, uh, put it on with the rock straps and then I was just having my, my breakfast and then one of the horses started vigorously wiping its bum on the tent attached to the bike so much so that the whole bike was moving up and down and it was about to topple over the bike so I had to run over, chuck the helmet on and head off. So that was an unpleasant morning, apart from the lovely sunset. But I highly sunrise. recommend it. Sunrise. But I highly recommend it. Um, for one, I highly recommend motorcycle camping. And I also very, very highly recommend the wingman of the road. And after using it, it's, it's not ridiculously big, but it's a good size. And it's also fairly chunky weight-wise, wingman of the road. But, but... It is a built-in tent with a built-in mattress and sleeping bag, all rolled into one. So you just roll it in one and it's done. It really is incredibly easy. And if you think of how much space you would need for a tent and then a sleeping bag and then a mattress on top of your bike with all of the bungee cords you'd need, this all-in-one solution, I would rate it very, very highly. And I move on to an article that, and I love these types of articles. I actually often, I often send these articles to my dad when I get them because I find them so interesting. And this is leading somewhere. This article is, and apologies for not being specifically bike related, the most low maintenance cars ever made. Okay. And I always say it with cars especially, but the same applies to bikes. If you want a stress-free car or bike, if you want to own a stress-free vehicle that will get you from A to B, is good quality, it is not over-engineered, and it will not ruin your life. The only option is a Japanese vehicle. There is no other option. And have a listen to this, the lowest maintenance cars ever made. Okay, number one. Toyota Prius, Japanese. Number two, Toyota Tacoma, Japanese. Number three, Toyota Yaris, Japanese. Number four, Toyota Corolla. Number five, Toyota Camry. Number six, this is just ridiculous, Toyota Highlander. Number seven, Lexus, again, Japanese. Number eight, Honda Fit, again, Japanese. 
Number 9, Honda Civic. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Number 10, Honda CRV. Number 11, Nissan Versa. Another Japanese one. Number 12, Nissan Rogue. And I'll do one more. It's ridiculous. Number 13, Nissan Sentra. If you want to buy a reliable vehicle, forget about anything European and forget about anything American. The only option, if you want absolute reliability, are Japanese vehicles. There really is no other choice at all. In fact, if you look at customer satisfaction and unreliable and unreliability ratings and records, in the UK, almost exclusively, the company that scores worst is Land Rover. The Land Rover, the Range Rover, the Range Rover Sports, the Range Rover Discoveries, their reliability rating is so atrocious. It, it almost makes it impossible to buy one. I actually remember a friend of a friend had one. He had a Land Rover Defender and he actually had to send it back twice in the space of a year and a half. So he sent it back once to replace the whole vehicle because the engine was completely gone. The next vehicle he got com just completely ruined in every way. Nothing worked at all. So much so that he ended up taking him to court to get his money back. Uh, and if you go, if when Monarch and I went to Bali, Indonesia, for a couple of winters we went there. If, if you're Balinese, if you're Indonesian, and money is a bit tight, and you need the most viable, most sensible mode of transport that will not break down, that will get you to work every single day, and that will be dirt cheap to maintain, what do you go for? You go for a little 150cc Honda. When you go out to Thailand or Indonesia, 99% of all motorcycles and scooters are Hondas, 99%. You're not gonna see any Vespas out in Bali because no one's going to spend probably 30% more money to get a Vespa, which isn't going to be anywhere near as reliable as a Honda. You go Japanese because you don't have the financial stability to be messing around with any fancy vehicles. You have to get what you know works. And I carry on my point because listen to this, just to back up my research that really Japanese vehicles, if you want reliability, they are the only way to go. So listen to this. I'm on AutoTrader, AutoTrader UK, and all I've put into AutoTrader is mileage. I am only looking here at motorcycles with over a hundred thousand miles. That is my only criteria. I don't care about the engine size or anything else. The only thing I want to know is I want to see every single motorcycle that's on Auto Trader with over a hundred thousand miles. And there are only five motorcycles. And of those five motorcycles, let me read them out. Let me list them. The first one. In fact, I'm just going to check now. There are there are four. Even one of them must be a typo, so I'm going to ignore that 50cc saying it's got 123,000 because that cannot be true for a two-year-old bike. Okay, here we go. The first one, a Honda NC700, 105,000 miles. Actually, that could be a good buy. Honda NC700, 105,000 miles, 2013 model, 670cc. Okay, the second one, is a Honda CB350 with 207,000 miles. The third one 
This is good for the Brits. The third one is a Triumph Trophy from 2013 with 101,000 miles. And the final one is a Honda GL Goldwing with 113,000 miles. So there you go, three out of the four only bikes for sale at the moment on Auto Trader, on Bike Trader are Japanese. But well done to the Triumph Trophy. And what I did find interesting on this, you know, where are the, the BMW GSs? You know, these really, these big adventure bikes, these big tourer bikes. I would love to know. Please send me an email, dob.bs at outlook.com, dob.bs at outlook.com. Tell me if you have a really high mileage bike. Send me an email. Let me know the bike model and the mileage and the year. Um, it doesn't matter if it's Japanese, European, American. And also, I want to know, these big Harleys, where's the big mileage on these Harleys? Maybe we don't get that in the UK, but some Americans, let me know. I bet you've got some Harleys with some massive mileage, considering the size of the country. And they're built for big mileage. So let me know your highest mileage motorbike or a high mileage motorbike that you've come across. Okay, I've got here three tip-offs for motorbikes that what about I, do you know what? I'd, I'd heard of I'd heard of two of the three but these look quite interesting and I'm going to start with my knowledge is so small that I'm not even sure of the exact kind of genre of these bikes are they what is a supermoto I don't know is it enduro is it supermoto they look like a really cool fun kind of off-road bike that would just be brilliant on the green lanes the off-road tracks japanese suzuki and it's called i think i can't remember where someone recommended this to me but they said they've got one of these and so i googled it and i thought oh that, that's a cool looking bike right here we go suzuki drz 400 so dr-z 400 you're looking there between 2004 and 2008 for year. And they start at 3,900 pounds, but they look just like an incredibly fun bike that you can rip around the country lanes, go off-roading, you can bash them about, gigantic amount of suspension travel. And actually, I think that these these kind of enduro style, you know, really genuinely focused, really light off-road bikes, look absolutely brilliant they look genuinely cool these i've had a few people saying that, that you know they want to get into this type of riding i think this this may start gaining in popularity because of course you can use them perfectly happily on the road as well um but they'd be i mean if you compare it for example to a scrambler you know for example a trans scrambler 220 kilos these are going to be about 120 130 kilos light as a feather and they'd be incredibly fun put some knobbly tires on those and with that high suspension travel they've got under seat exhaust as well amazing looking bikes suzuki drz 400 next i move on to a bike that costs £3,999 brand new and that is from as far as I can tell a French company so if you're looking for an absolute no-nonsense Bonnevalesque motorbike that will not break the bank and that would just give you a huge amount of riding pleasure wherever you go because a 400cc will be perfectly capable for touring 
I give you the MASH Motorcycle 500. 500 spelt F-I-V-E-H-U-N-D-R-E-D. It's the actual, the letters, not the number. So the model is the MASH 500. And here's the confusing bit. 400, 400, because that's the engine size. So weirdly, it's called the MASH 500 400. And I know a couple of owners of these. And they say they're very good. And they say that because it's got slightly increased engine size compared to, for example, the, what are we looking at? The MUT 250s. It just gives you that extra little bit of flexibility. It means that you can pass your, I think it'll be the A1 test. It, it basically means that you don't need to pass the full big motorcycle test. This is compliant with the more, what would I call it, more intermediate test with its 397cc, one cylinder, four stroke engine. And I'm quoting here, it is your ideal partner for touring trips, but also with commuting routes. The 500 is your best friends. It is a very good looking bike. I've seen a couple parked up in London and that would be a really fun bike. And a, a bike that's good for people getting into biking or also people who, you know, they live in a, a city like London and they just want a cool, fun looking bike that you're not going to be having sleepless nights about it, maybe getting stolen or getting biffed up on the, the city streets. So have a look out for that, MASH 500. Someone recommended something to me and that is, it's a bike that I've known about or a brand that I've known about for a while. I've mentioned it a few times, but I should mention it again here, just in a little bit more detail, because this is from, here we go. This is from a British company that possibly a lot of Brits or a lot of non-Brits may not have heard about. And that is CCM Motorcycles. I've seen them in a few shows. They're very unlike any of the mainstream motorbikes. They often make their bikes in limited numbers, but what they focus on, a 650cc super light, ridiculously stripped back retro looking motorbikes, often with kind of World War II vibes. For example, the one I'm looking at now is called the Spitfire. And I, I think, if I remember correctly, I think they're about, I think it's got a 650 engine, 650cc. And I think, if I remember correctly, it's got 135 kilogram weight. That, that is just an incredibly, incredibly low weight for such an engine. If you look, if you look at one online, brand new, £9,995, for example, for a Spitfire Bobber, and that's a single seater. You can see absolutely every single element of the engine there. You cannot imagine to see a more stripped back bike. It's got low slung dual exhaust. It's got floating saddle. It's got... Brembo brakes, mid position foot pegs, TIG welded steel trellis frame with a range of high quality powder coatings to choose from. Just 500 individually numbered bobbers will be produced. They really are incredibly kind of low production run bikes. But if you do buy one, what you'll be getting is an incredibly good looking bike that will almost not depreciate in value at all. For example, I'm looking at a three-year-old CCM Spitfire from 2018 and it's 8,900 pounds selling from a private seller. And listen to this, this is, 
1,983 miles, so only just run in. It's number 181 of an exclusive run of 250 ever made. It's got 60 horsepower and a weight of 135 kilos, which makes it fast and agile. Factory extras include twin disc upgrade, billet, yada, 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 yada. But 60 horsepower for a bike that weighs just 135 kilos, that they are the ingredients needed for a ridiculously fun bike. And the fact that it's it's dropped in value, one thousand pounds in three years. You know, these these niche bikes, they really do hold their value incredibly well. So have a look at that. If you want a slightly left field bike, I'll be completely honest, they do not look like the most practical things. If you want to ride two up, forget about it. Don't even look at them. But if, but if you want a light, agile weapon on the road, then take a look at CCM. And final bit for the day. This is... I think it's actually a podcast listener's bike, and it is a Triumph Tiger. Now, I've never ridden any adventure bikes in my life, but I think this is an especially nice one. Uh, so I thought I'd mention this one, because if you're on the lookout for a 2013 Triumph Tiger 800cc, 5,600 pounds, and it does look the business in black, gold forks, it's got the luggage rack on the back, one owner from new, MOT till July 2020 and it's only got about 4,000 miles if you're on the hunt for a good a good looking Triumph Tiger go and have a look at that Triumph Tiger 800 from 2013 5,599 pounds that does to me look like an especially tidy one but that's it for this week's episode thank you so much for sticking with me have a brilliant week and I'll speak to you in the next one.